大家好，我是司机 l o 大家好，我是乘客 l o 欢迎来到北美研究生转运站。哎，同学，你要去哪里？司机大哥你好，我要去万华车站附近。呵呵呵，啊，请上车。阿、啊、郎哥，阿、啊、你有要听什么节目不？哦，可以选吗？那我想要听 Radio New Bloom。啊啊，黑西沙啊，你听了就知道啦。Hello, I'm Daniel Yoling, and welcome to a special episode of Radio New Bloom, co-hosted with the North American Taiwan Studies Association, or NATSA for short. Today, I'm excited to share a recording of an online event that New Bloom did with NASA entitled "Taiwan and the Parentheses New Cold War." This moderated conversation between Professors Wen Liu and Wendy Chang happened on July 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as part of NASA's 2022 online festival. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. 告白的人总是会比他吃亏，不是算牛。Today we are joined by Professors Wen Liu and Wendy Chang to discuss Taiwan in relation to what some have called a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. Professor Wen Liu is an assistant research professor at the Institute of Ethnology, Academia Sinica, as well as an affiliated faculty in the Department of Sociology at National Taiwan University. She is also an editor at New Bloom Magazine and is currently finishing a book project examining Asian Americanness in the context of geopolitical entanglements between the U.S. and the Asia Pacific. Professor Wendy Chang is associate professor and program chair of American Studies at Scripps College and is currently finishing a book project examining the political lives of Taiwanese migrants who came to the United States as students from the 1960s to 1980s. Professors Wen Liu and Wendy Chang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So the topic for today's discussion is Taiwan and the Cold War, and in particular, how we might critically engage with the increasingly circulated position that Taiwan is essentially a U.S. neo-colony in a quote new Cold War waged against China. So to get things started, first question that I wanted to ask is if either of you could first briefly give an introductory overview of what exactly this new Cold War discourse is, especially for listeners who might not be tuned in to the various places in which this discourse emerges. Sure.、Um, I'll start.、Um, I think new Cold War, right? As、um, Daniel has talked about, it has been treated like the existing reality, right? But in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And a lot of folks will trace this idea of new Cold War to perhaps Trump's trade war with China in 2017 and 18, and sort of more escalated in the sort of COVID-19 area where we see. Uh, geopolitical contest between U.S. and China, you know, were getting worse and getting escalated. But why we're talking about we need to complicate this view because we can see broadly speaking, right? It is a war view that see the world only in terms of the East versus the West. And there's a lot of discourses that、uh, coming from before, like the centuries-old clash of civilization idea, and obviously the more recently sort of Western democracy. Versus Chinese or Russian authoritarianism idea, 
And this view is perpetuated, I think most critical scholars would say, right, by the Republican hawks, but it's also in fact perpetuated by the Beijing authority, by uh, figures like Putin, right, themselves, to want to hold on to a legitimacy of their regimes against um, some so-called sort of Western hegemony. But when we think about it, the materialist reality of whether China or Russia is still, in fact, representing a communist alternative reality, aside from the West, or is can be economically completely in- independent from the West. I mean, it is completely different from, you know, the 50s and 60s Cold War reality. So we really need to think about or complicated new core discourses by thinking about global capitalism, right? So this is kind of my position on this. And I think also this kind of discourse is dangerous because it really portrays a kind of East is good or victim of the West, or the West is evil or good, that kind of binarist idea that, again, right, lacks nuances. And more importantly, I think for our audience today, often situated Taiwan as a pawn, right? You know, the caught between the superpowers, having no real agency, but having to side with either of the regime and any of the action that coming from the small states or semi-sovereign state are all usually being interpreted by an act of being, you know, a sub-colony or sub-imperial entity of the larger power. So I think this is kind of my more general understanding of the discourse and the problem. Thank you so much for that, Professor Liu. Professor Chang, did you want to to add anything? No, I think that's a, that's a great, that's a, that's a really helpful description of the new Cold War. The only thing I would add is that I think particularly in Asian American studies and American studies, we're still trying to reckon with our understanding of the old Cold War, you know, which hasn't really ended and still structures a lot of the geopolitical material and ideological relationships today. So I think particularly with regard to Taiwan and Taiwanese Americans and how that identity has developed over time, which I'll talk more about throughout this hour, it's really important to go back and try to understand how that old Cold War is not old and gone, right, but being continued on and added to, right, that some of those similar structuring logics are in place, but are shifting and with these additional dynamics that when also described. Mm, yeah, thank you so much for that. So when I, I was curious if you could just to pick up on something that you had mentioned just now about a focus on global capitalism really being one sort of way of uh, troubling some of the Cold War binarisms that structure a lot of this discourse. I'm curious if you could comment at all about sort of the, the presence of new core discourses within the Anglophone left, like within kind of self-professed leftist publications or outlets who, who would sort of counter argue back by saying that like we are propagating a sort of analysis of global capitalism and our, our sort of politics is, a, is an avowedly kind of internationalist leftist politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the general problem that whatever, particularly coming from the standpoint of Taiwan, the kind of politics is usually interpreted right under this binaristic term. And particularly like in the Anglophone critical theory tradition and in the fields I'm more familiar with, such as queer theory, right? It often interprets like Taiwanese pursuit of democracy, you know, the Taiwanese pursuit of LGBTQ rights in this framework of uh, buying into American cultural imperialism, right? Or a, a sense of false consciousness that's uh, blindly following the West. But rather than thinking about how the movements are coming from 
you know, the histories and traditions of democratization and the pursuits of decoloniality, anti-authoritarian regime within Taiwanese history itself, and often looked at, right, from these new cohort discourses as just a status right-wing politics. And even more complicated is that sometimes it's being interpreted as a way of trying to be different from the so-called authoritarian China, right? So as if the way that the world sees China as, for instance, lacking human rights or lacking LGBTQ rights is a problem of Taiwanese queer liberalism, rather than right, the state's own doing and the problem that we think, you know, coming from the Chinese state. So that kind of binarism, as Wendy had talked about, have a lot of implication in how I think Asia is understood, particularly for Anglophone folks in this, um, I think, really reductionist terms. I see, I see. And to go back to Professor Cheng's point earlier about exploring some of the, I guess, unresolved issues in the quote-unquote old Cold War. So I was wondering as a way to sort of get back to some of that history, if we could pivot here to talk a little bit more about your current book project that you're working on, on Taiwanese migrants from the 60s to 80s. One of the places I thought might be a helpful place to start was to ask you to tell us a little bit more about Lin Xiaoxin, and particularly about his politicization of the U.S., his involvement in the Baodiao movement, and it's just sort of to ground the discussions that we're having kind of with one of the this figures in your uh, in your manuscript. Sure. Yeah. So so I'll start with a little bit of information about my personal positionality in this, because I think that helps to understand how I enter into this work. You know, so I'm a second generation Taiwanese American, and I was raised in a very pro-independence Taiwanese identified household. And then my parents, the book project is about my parents' generation. Um, immigrants who came during a time in which most of them were students. The vast majority of Taiwanese who came into the U.S. from the 60s to the 80s were students, and they were primarily students in science, technology, engineering, and medicine fields, and that was structured by the U.S. Cold War relationship with the KMT, and also for purposes of U.S. building geopolitical and economic and technological and military advantage by cultivating the best of these countries that they had friendly relationships with in, in that Cold, Cold War binaristic structure. So what happens then is a lot of Taiwanese identified people or, or people who became Taiwanese identified, right? This was not a given during that time. There's a polarization of identities between Ren and Ren that didn't necessarily exist for all of the people, all the students who are coming as migrants during that time. But that binarization becomes polarized on U.S. campuses because of KMT surveillance, um, because the KMT was persecuting any kind of Taiwanese identification to the degree that it forced people to identify even more with something. So even to join a Taiwanese student organization was to be against the KMT, to be committing some sort of treason. So what happens then is that the histories of Weishengren and Benjamin become split apart so those two communities, at least people who had kind of a more political consciousness, did not interact much with each other. And those formerly shared histories diverge and then also get mapped onto a kind of overly Latin or simplistic politics of pro-independence and pro-unification or pro-KMT. So what I was really interested in is how did that process happen? 
And then I had to kind of work myself backwards from this very pro-independence Taiwan identified positionality to think about the bigger politics that was happening. Because within the community, those narratives of pro-Taiwan independence activism seemed to happen in a vacuum from global history, in which the only countries that exist are Taiwan, the US, and China. <laughs> but actually, what I found when I started interviewing people is that right when people got to campuses, they were reading absolutely everything they could get their hands on because they had suddenly had access to so much more literature. So it was pretty common. For example, I tell the story in my book manuscript of Feng Zhe-sung, who becomes one of the leaders of the Taiwan Revolutionary Party. You know, he gets a Greyhound bus ticket, you know, I don't remember what it was, $50 or something, where he could take the bus all across the entire country. And what he did was he hit up every East Asian studies library that he could and read everything that he had not been able to read, right? And this is a pretty common story. So those libraries became really important sites of political consciousness and formation, particularly for a lot of Taiwanese to learn about Marxism, to learn about China, to, to read everything that they have not been able to read in Taiwan. And so Lin Xiaoxin is a really interesting figure because he's a native Taiwanese and he, so a little bit of biographical information, he was born in 1944 in Taipei, but actually was evacuated, his family was evacuated to the countryside the first month of his life because of US bombing, because they were bombing Taiwan as a, as a Japanese colony at that time. And then he grew up very aware of the sort of colonial rule, colonial in that it was divided by ethnicity, that the KMT was imposing upon native Taiwanese because his father had been a well-educated engineer during the Japanese period, but he suffered job discrimination and had to take kind of like a low-level civil servant job for his entire life. So Lin Shashin grows up with those dual awarenesses of U.S. military violence and KMT colonial or neo-colonial rule, whatever you want to call it. But then he follows the path that a lot of people who ended up in the U.S. follow, right? He's an extremely bright student. He's top of his class. He gets into National Taiwan University, Taita, is in the physics department. But he also gets involved with a publication called Science Monthly. And this was a group of people, um, I think it was called Science Weekly in the earlier Taiwanese iteration, but these were a group of both mainlander and native Taiwanese students who were interested in continuing the lineage of the May 4th movement in China. So this is something that comes out too, right? People who were already thinking about, you know, how are we as top students of our time, potential future leaders of Taiwan, how are we relating to these longer traditions, these longer political and intellectual traditions? Um, so he was already part of that collective, creating a weekly science magazine. So the idea carrying over from the May 4th movement of science and democracy as, you know, serving the motherland, the motherland being China. And then he comes to the U.S., lands in Chicago in 1967 at the University of Chicago for a Ph.D. study in physics. And still not, doesn't identify as very political at this time, even though he'd been involved in the Science Weekly group. But he starts to see all the anti-war protests, anti-Vietnam War protests, and that kind of clicks with the critique he already has of the U.S., the critique he already has of the KMT, of authoritarian rule. And so he and the other Science Weekly group, most of whom had also come from NTU, they had been keeping in touch with this really ingenious form of communication called circular letters. And these are archived at Tsinghua Library. So because mail correspondence took so long, they would circulate these notebooks, like 
several notebooks at a time to all the leaders, all the different people in the group, and everybody would write their update on one notebook and then send it on to the next person. But there would be multiple notebooks in circulation at any given time, so they could communicate more quickly than just you know having to send a group letter on and on. So all these people were in touch with each other. These people that already had, you could say, kind of like a nascent kind of political consciousness. And then in 1970, the U.S. announced that it was going to return, right, a disputed term, but return the Yaoitai Islands to Japan because it had received ownership of these islands when Japan lost World War II, right, along with many of, of Japan's other former colonies. But the Yaoitai Islands were contested territory. They're a small set of coral islets between Taiwan, Okinawa, and China. And natural gas reserves had just been discovered in that area as well. So what happened was that a lot of Chinese students or Han students from different places, Hong Kong and Taiwan primarily, saw this move as a revival of Japanese militarism and the collusion of the U.S. So a dual imperialist move against the sovereignty of either China or Taiwan, who also claimed these islands. And so this seemingly small move ignited the biggest Han student migrant movement in the United States up until that time. Thousand to two thousand students organized to protest against this pending handover of the Yaoitai Islands, and they did it in this way. So, Shumeishi、uh, introduces the term Sinophone to think about it not only linguistically but politically, and I use that to think about the activism of the Baotiao movement. Because it was a Sinophone internationalist movement initially against U.S. and Japanese imperialism, and initially it was not tied to China or Taiwan. They banded together to oppose a violation of broadly Chinese sovereignty, and of course, then there are many splits, and it gets very complicated. But the interesting thing about this movement is that. Although it started in the U.S., then inspired activists in Hong Kong and Taiwan. You know, a lot of student activists opened the doors for a certain kind of internationalist Sinophone political dialogue and action about imperialism, about colonialism, and so on. And then it continued to have reverberations up to the present, right? Which are too complicated to get into. <laughs> but、um, but the, the very long point is that Lin Xiaoxin was one of the leaders, and then because of that. His Taiwanese passport was confiscated, and unlike a lot of other Taiwanese who became politically active during this time, who then chose to apply for U.S. citizenship, Lin Xiaoxin felt that he could not do that on a principled level because he was opposed to U.S. imperialism and he opposed this government as well. So he actually became a stateless person for 13 years. He had to leave his program, and then, but he continued to be an activist. So. He started an organization called the Organization for the Support of the Democratic Movement in Taiwan, which was like a broadly leftist organization that tried to continue to chart a path that was neither pro-unification or pro-independence, because he was really upset by the kind of splits and polarization that happened in the Baotiao movement. So he tried to hold that space for a political position that would increase something that would support self-determination in Taiwan. And so it was stories like this that I was looking for, you know, that show that those kinds of binaries that we take for granted now did not always exist, you know, because all of these students who became activists knew each other, and to be pro-communist and pro-independence initially during that time were not opposed because the common enemy was the KMT. But it's only because of these very specific historical conditions that that starts to shift. 
So I think the consequence of that is that a lot of that left history that then became associated with being pro-China then gets erased from that history of Taiwan independence activism and so on. Mm. Yeah. Or I guess just to pick up on the last thread that you just shared around leftist history within the Taiwanese independence movement at this time. I'm curious to sort of follow up on, on that to ask, uh, to hear a little bit more about Taiwan era, specifically how the sort of founding of Taiwan era is in, in some ways was, uh, I think you had mentioned in your book manuscript, uh, a sort of pointed kind of action in opposition to what was sort of perceived as a more sort of pro-U.S. lobby contingent within the World United Formosans for Independence. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that sort of that split or that kind of alternative kind of genealogy of development um, around leftist thinking within the Taiwanese independence movement and sort of what the, the kind of inter, intergroup quarrels were uh, there that you that you saw in your research? Sure, yeah. So Wu Fi, Haidu Liamong, emerged as the dominant pro-Taiwan independence organization in the diaspora. But what I found is that all along there were people who were questioning what became kind of like the more centrist politics of Wu Fi. And so Taiwan era emerged as a Marxist-Leninist internationalist platform and group that challenged Wu Fi, they said, for their lack of class analysis. And they wanted to assert that if there was going to be a revolution in Taiwan, it really had to be in Taiwan and not led by what was on a trajectory to become a more elite class of Taiwanese in the United States. And similarly, the Taiwan Revolutionary Party criticized some of the ways that Wufi operated that replicated the regime that they were trying to overthrow. They criticized the leadership as being elitist. Taiwan era criticized Wufi for playing upon ethnic divisions, right? Many of the same kinds of critiques that you hear later on of some of the pro-independence leadership, because many of them then became leaders in Taiwan when they came back. So what I'm hoping to show there is that these activists on the left were constantly trying to move with the particular circumstances that they were in to push for more radical, more progressive, more internationalist approach to thinking about the future of Taiwan. So for example, Taiwan era, one of the founders of Taiwan era was Gao Tengyan, who then came back to Taiwan and started the Taiwan Green Party as a way to continue to work on those same left internationalist politics. And so I think that the thing to note about that history is that even though the U.S. had created a lot of conditions for a more conservative strand of the pro-independence movement to emerge, it was also at the same time creating opportunities for political education, for radical politicization, for exposure to third world left decolonization movements, and so on, that a lot of these activists including Gao, told me that they would not have absorbed or encountered, right, if they had just stayed in Taiwan. Lin Xiaoxin said that as well, right? It's because he went to the U.S. that he became more left and became more politically radicalized than he would have otherwise. So I think it's just trying to see that those kinds of dialogues, that it was a very vibrant space of political discourse and argument all along rather than some sort of, you know, foreign ethnic nationalist movement, right? Which I think is a real like flattening of that history. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Professor Chang. I kind of want to jump back to Professor Liu to sort of ask more about her current research or her current work kind of responding to this question of 
How do we think about a left Taiwan independence position today in today's context in the midst of some of the new Cold War discourses that we were describing earlier? Yeah, so I guess, uh, Professor Liu, could you tell us a little bit more about your current work on the topic? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm working on a series of field work on Taiwan's civil defense workshop in light of, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which uh, really draws the new types of grassroots movement to rethink the concept of war. So I think part of the problem with particularly, I think, Western critical theory is this moralistic rejection of war or militarism, right, in a way that any talk of uh, war or militarism is immediately associated with a right-wing politics, right? And, and we can see a lot in how the West is responding to the question of Ukraine now, right? That people, you know, a lot of the sort of post-socialist or um, Eastern European activists call uh, this term West blending, right? In the ways that Western leftists rejected, you know, assist Ukraine with the kind of defense weapons that they need or to clearly defend Ukraine against Russia. So similarly, I think a lot of the Taiwanese movement out today are using Ukraine as a lesson to think about how do we better prepare ourselves, you know, in, in a case of conflict, right? So people draw quite strong similarity between Taiwan's sort of geopolitical situation in a lot of the post-Soviet state facing sort of multiple forms of hegemonic power. And I think a lot of the ethos is that we need to rethink boundary between war and peace, not as sort of direct opposite, right, that you can't just choose either one, but as a continuum. So, and the most dangerous thing I think about war that these activists talked about is to not talk about war at all, right, to, to treat it as if we pretend that we're at peaceful time, then, you know, the situation will just continue to exist across the strait. But peace is actually something you need to really actively work hard on and to maintain, right? So I think part of the, you know, what this kind of new type of activism can challenge the sort of Western-based thinking around war is that it refuses to treat war as a moral object that it just needs to be principally rejected and opposed. But we need to think about how the world functions quite differently now, right? That we are constantly engaging in this low-level yet permanent kind of warfare. So there's terms like hybrid warfare, shadow war, disinformation war, not just always in a traditional kind of battle. So how do we not engage, right, if we're already implicated in that? We cannot say we principally reject war, so let's just not think about it. And everything, every thought, every theory about, around it is all about militarization, right? So the best strategy for them is not to just say, well, war is evil, peace is good. The Taiwanese know this, right? Peace takes effort to maintain. And it matters when how we think about election, you know, the democratic leaders matters and which side of, you know, news you consume matter. All these is part of an idea of thinking about civil defense. It's about bringing war to our consciousness instead of treating it like an affect, you know, a fear or an avoidance to just to overcome. So similar to, you know, the kind of, earlier conversation around the new Cold War discourses, right? There's a lot of sort of the Western no Cold War campaigns who refuse to see Taiwanese sovereignty as a critical issue or think about Taiwanese sovereignty as only assisted by sort of U.S. militarism. 
because they're worried about escalating sort of a war between the Shui, but they're bought into you know the Cold War balance of power discourses, right? That if we just give China something right now, we can make peace of it. Uh, then you know the world will stay balanced, and the U.S. hegemony you know will sort of decline. But it doesn't it eventually will lead China to take over things by other kind of political means, right? The Sunflower Movement in 2014 to Taiwan uh, was sort of an evidence of that, right? When even if there was no so military conflict happened, there was a lot of measures from China that was trying to taking over Taiwan's business, Taiwan's civil society by political and economic means. So we need to think about different way of thinking about deterrence, right? Deterrence really matters. Civil defense is a way of boosting up deterrence, and also obviously international solidarity is also another way of boosting. Deterrence, or uh, we're not only thinking about building alliance with the U.S. Now, we're thinking about building alliance with Eastern European states who face similar issues, and that kind of global connection really matters and really diversify sort of our allyship in the international sphere. So I think in that way,、um, the younger Taiwanese activists are really trying to reach out to a different kind of internationalism from perhaps you know the Cold War period of you know following the U.S. anti-China that sort of binarism. Thank you, Professor Liu. I want to go back to Professor Chang to talk about the later period of your work, the nineteen late seventies and the nineteen eighties, and to ask you about the case of Chen Wencheng's murder. So you write in your book manuscript, if I may pull a quote, that quote, the voices and actions of Taiwanese student activists on behalf of Chen, as well as Chen himself, put in dialogue with hegemonic U.S. state discourses. Help us think about how we might unmoor human rights from its historical emergence, concomitant with ideological justifications for U.S.-led Western global dominance.、Um, and you argue in your book, in particular, that reactions to Chen's death, particularly in the U.S., solidified a U.S.-dominant liberal human rights-centered narrative of history that erased the specific historical power relationships and geopolitics that led to Chen's death. So, in other words, that Chen's life and and legacy can't be reduced to this particular narrative.、Um, so, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Chen's life and and the research that you've done that specifically reworks this narrative. Sure. Yeah. So, I think it's really important to think about the stories we tell about the past and what their relationship is to current power structures. So. Chen Wenzheng is usually talked about unambiguously as a supporter of Taiwanese independence and democracy. You know, a scholar of great promise whose life was cut short by the cruelty of KMT authoritarian violence. And although those things are true, but there's a certain emphasis on. His alignment with freedom, with democracy, and his murder as a violation of human rights, rather thinking than thinking about the actual conditions that made that possible, and the conditions that made that possible was the particular relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan, in which the U.S. government was well aware of the surveillance that was happening throughout the U.S. You know, there was this 1978 Senate Foreign Relations Committee report. You know, this is three years before Chen's death. That shows that they are well aware of the scope of the operations. The CIA knew that there were 45 KMT intelligence officers in the U.S. and that 10 to 25 of them were located at on college campuses. 
and that the job of these intelligence officers was to recruit volunteers and informants to spy on fellow students and professors, and that some of these informants were even professors. So they already knew, but it was part of this permissive relationship that the U.S. had with so-called friendly governments that they wanted to be aligned with U.S. interests for Cold War purposes. And so there was a kind of explicit policy that emerged at the beginning of the Reagan presidency in 1980 that looking the other way was advantageous for U.S. interests because it would pay off in the kind of support that these friendly governments eventually gave to the U.S. And there was a quid pro pro also between allowing intelligence operatives of friendly governments to operate in the United States and then U.S. intelligence operating in other parts of the world and getting assistance from these other friendly governments to counter the rise of Soviet power and so on. So the U.S. complicity in creating the conditions that led to Chen's death is totally left out of that kind of liberal human rights narrative. So that's one aspect of erasure. And so in the chapter when I write about Chen, I use this phrase from Crystal Parikh's book, Writing Human Rights, where she talks about, you know, forms and ways of life the U.S. failed to recognize or refused to protect. Forms and ways of life the U.S. failed to recognize or refused to protect. And what Parikh says is that we can use the notion of human rights to think about what are those forms and ways of life that are not protected and to use human rights as a method rather than simply critique it as a liberal discourse. And so for Taiwanese activists, human rights was a tool that was available to them to call attention to Chen's murder. But for example, OSDMT, right, the organization for the support of the democratic movement in Taiwan, Lin Xiaoxin's organization, they were very explicit about pointing out that the U.S. had long known about, you know, spies on campus and had done nothing about it. And they published a special issue after Chen's death that profiled 28 other cases of buying incidents at U.S. campuses, right? And they also called for assistance for Rita Ye, who was mainlander Taiwanese who had studied in the U.S. and then been arrested in Taiwan based on supposed affiliation with communists. And so they used it to make a structural critique of the United States rather than just to treat Chen as an exceptional individual. And something that OSDMT said really stuck with me. They said that the tolerance of the U.S. for these infringements upon freedom has now cost a precious human life. So they referred to him as a precious human life, not casting his value only as a professor, as a promising scholar, as a good citizen, as a father and so on, all of which are true losses, but they were trying to do something different there. Yeah, so that's one <laughs> That's one way of answering it. I mean, I, I think the other way of thinking about Chen's life is that he was not just an advocate for Taiwanese independence. He was also very interested in left politics. He even dedicated his PhD thesis to the Chinese Communist Revolution. He was very interested in, he felt that any politics in Taiwan should begin from bettering the conditions of workers and poor people. But even within Taiwanese communities, that narrative of Chen's politics is completely left out because it's difficult. It's complicated. It doesn't fit into a sort of pro-freedom, pro-democracy narrative that aligns with the pro-U.S. position of a lot of factions of the Taiwan independence movement. And he does, Chen does change, he did change his politics, like many people who he was very disillusioned. 
after the truth of what happened during the Cultural Revolution came out, after the fall of the Gang of Four came out, and he did become resolutely Taiwan independent, but his politics were broader than that. So those are a couple of ways in which the Chen case and how the significance of his case is understood can help us reopen, you know, what that history means and how we conceive of Taiwanese and Taiwanese American political history. Mm. Yeah. So I, I want to actually pull a question from the audience. I think kind of connects to to both the kind of conversation threads that we have going on between Professors Cheng and Liu. And the question is. To what extent is the erasure of left involvement with Taiwanese independence the result of subsequent consolidation of left support for China's claims? Maybe I can start, and then Wen can <laughs> continue.、Um, so I think there's different layers to that because that erasure is happening on multiple levels. It's not just a sort of global Western left kind of. Top-down influence, right? It's also because of the internal politics of Taiwan and martial law. So I think you know, increasingly, as I've talked about this period of political formation, I'm adding Cold War and martial law because I don't think we can understate how destructive. Forty years of surveillance and attempted thought control. <laughs> Can be on a population extending to the diaspora, so you know there are people that I talk to now who were very ardent leftists in the '60s and '70s, but they don't even want to say that they were political because they've been so traumatized by the KMT persecution of any kind of affiliation with left politics. So I think there's an internal. Silencing and people who lost everything because they read a few. Books about Marxism, <laughs> you know. So I think that that impact really needs to be attended to within Taiwanese communities before or alongside thinking about how that fits within a larger global politics. Yeah, I just want to say I think what Professor Chen's work does is really show, like our political consciousness is always a product of. The history and the era we are in, right? So, in the fifties and sixties, I think there was this global opportunity to think about anti-imperialist politics, along with anti-war politics, along with anti-white supremacy, right? And that's basically, you know, a widespread ethos also within Asian American movements in the states, also the sort of decolonial movement in the third world, etc., etc. But I think that continues still to be the definition of leftism today, particularly in academia, that we sort of measure every activism in the standard that we saw at that time. So a lot of the you can say the new left movement now, or the youth movement in Asia now, can be considered you know not so serious leftists, right? Or if you wanted to talk about the recent rise in Asian American tankism, I mean it's also Part of the idea, if you hold on to a certain era or periodic way of thinking about anti-imperialism or leftism, and does not evolve with the conditions at the newer terms, it's very easy to fall into that kind of nostalgia. Or perhaps the person also asks,、uh, it can be easily appropriated by a new regime that used anti-imperialism, but actually it's functioning as an authoritarian or hegemonic state. So I think it's we need to be careful when we think about political action and in the time that we're in. So、uh, I think that that's kind of the response I have to that question. 
Oh, great. Thank you so much. And just to follow up for a question for both of our invited speakers that kind of builds off of the, the comments just now, I'm curious to hear more about both of your thoughts on the particular moment that we're in, in discussing processes of politicization, specifically as it relates to Asian Americans. Because, uh, so I guess two things. One is I think one of the main concerns around tankyism in recent years is precisely that this is a sort of discourse through which a lot of Asian Americans interested in leftist politics are increasingly being radicalized by. So that's kind of one point. And the other point is sort of from a previous conversation uh, with Professor Chang, in, in which you had mentioned that kind of in the academic field of Asian American studies, that when people think about a tradition of leftism or radicalism, like Taiwan isn't the place that they sort of think of to go to, and that your work is sort of an intervention into that particular kind of erasure. Um, so I'm kind of curious if I could ask both of you about sort of your thoughts on kind of political radicalization in the present as it relates to some of the issues we've been talking about. Sure, yeah. I mean, in terms of Asian Americans, so my current book, I'm, I'm writing on this concept of racial injury, right? Because um, I think Asian Americans in the States because of you know decades of forced assimilation policy in the U.S. that has resulted in this grief right around the loss of place, loss of identity, a lot of the first and second generation Asian American you know in, in constant despair of searching of who they are, who they belong, right? And some of the you know politicization or can go to you know this hyper assimilation, right? If I'm a hundred percent American, then there's no more grief for me or my identity, right? But there's also another strain of sort of identity attachment, particularly for a lot of the college-educated, radicalized Asian-American who are well-read in leftist theory. You can be, you know, easy sort of persuaded by, you know, anti-US, anti-assimilation, and, and particularly anti-imperialist ideas, right? In it's sort of a historical condition that Wendy talked about in her book in the 50s and 60s, thinking about broader internationalism. But when we talk about today's Asian American, particularly, you know, in the escalated conflict and the recent visibility of the rise of China, this kind of anti-imperialist politics can also be split into different forms, right? And I, and I see one particularly interesting strain of anti-imperialist politics has become a form of, I, I call it anti-Americanism, right? Because in the desire of seeking this racial laws, some Asian Americans can be attached to China as, as a new idealized love object, right? And rejecting the U.S. as a, a place of trauma and violence and all negative affect. And China as this place of a strength, of global solidarity, of socialism, and et cetera, et cetera. So creating again or being sucked back into that kind of co-war structure of affect, right? That everything about America is bad, everything about China is good, that, you know, we've now colloquially called is a type of tankism, right? On Twitter and other political spaces. And that has resulted in really difficult conditions of democratic movements in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And, you know, they can easily interpret whatever happened in the anti-elect movement or in the sunflower movement in Taiwan as a kind of Western conspiracy, right? In rejection of China, being sort of uh, supported by, you know, CIA or U.S. imperialist power, having no agency of its own. Right? So in my book, I kind of write about this sort of rise of Asian American tankism as a form of, in, in Munoz's term, right, counter-identification. That is, in their disappointment of the U.S. due to racialized experiences, they seek a fully opposition or rejection of the U.S. 
uh, what they represent and in turn re-identifying something else. But Munoz also provides another way of thinking about identity attachment that, you know, he famously called disidentification, which is also where I see a lot of the sort of uh, new generation of Asian and diaspora, Asian American activists now today is rather than seeing the U.S. and the East or China as direct opposite, but thinking about a more sort of fluid, transnationally mobile experiences. And a lot of these folks, you know, have grounded experience in different parts of Asia as well. So they do not think about Asia as this flat, you know, totally indistinguished uh, thing, right? That's uh, as opposed to the U.S., but has its own internal contradictions, has its own sort of geopolitical conflicts. Um, so in a way, sort of having more nuanced political analyses of what's going on in Asia, but also what's going on in the U.S. So one quick example is, for instance, in Hong Kong's anti-ELAP movement, I mean, there was tons of police violence, right? And it was also during a time when in the U.S. there was a lot of the BLM, Black Lives Matter protests, in the new cohort discourse, we can easily see the movement as sort of contradicting each other. But some of these activists wanted to bring analyses of police brutality together, right? So having a more left-oriented analysis of both of the places and see connection in that way, rather than, again, the strict sort of U.S. versus China term. So, I mean, I see that that's the kind of very different, but also vibrant politicization that's happening now. Yeah, and Wen's analysis was really illuminating for me. So I really encourage everybody to go read her book when it comes out. Uh, yeah, so I think within Asian American studies, of course, it comes out of the history that Wen just references. It comes out of that moment of third world left politicization in the United States of a sort of internationalist left politics. And there were very good reasons for that. But the problem is that then the field kind of skews towards valorizing or let's say paying attention to working class left politics or as Viet Nguyen wrote already in 2001 or 2004, <laughs> a while ago, but that's been, uh, I think um, in Race and Resistance, looking for resistance everywhere, right? Any kind of hint of resistance to show a kind of subversive or anti-hegemonic kind of Asian American presence or identity. But the problem is that then it means that groups like Taiwanese Americans who are positioned to be, quote unquote, the good immigrants, right, as Madeleine Shu writes in her book, middle class Asian Americans or wealthy Asian Americans or people who are not ideologically left then are kind of either dismissed or not attended to in the analysis of Asian American history. And this has started to shift lately, but I think it may be a bit of an overcorrection, <laughs> you know, where it's about kind of like criticizing or demonizing or dismissing, you know, model minority. And there's plenty to criticize for people who kind of internalize or take on that model minority or assimilationist positionality. But I think it also misses a lot of the true global politics of these groups. And so, for example, just dismissing Taiwanese Americans as, you know, good subjects of the United States totally misses the creativity, the incredible kind of political organizing, the sacrifices, you know, of this first generation of Taiwanese migrants who came and tried every way they could think of to oppose the KMT authoritarian rule to increase democratization in Taiwan and so on. So, so I think what I want to do is create more space to deal with 
difficult politics, but also re-globalize how we understand Asian American history and politics. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, so we'll move into our audience Q&A formally right now. And the question that just came into the chat box piggybacks nicely off of the two comments just now. Uh, the question is, how do those of us on the left in the West advocate for Taiwan and Taiwanese issues in academia, in policy, and in life in general without buying into the, quote, new Cold War narrative? Read New Bloom. <laughs> 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 I mean, when and Daniel, do you want to talk a little bit about, because I think New Bloom is very actively trying to do this work of political education, of creating a space where exactly this kind of discourse can happen. When, as the more senior member, do you want to take the honors of responding first? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think it's still a question that I always think about now. I don't think I have a perfect answer, but my approach is that to represent Taiwan as a really complicated space, right, that it has its faults, right, but it has a lot of good things as well. It's not monolithic, right, and we have very divergent politics within Taiwan, right, obviously not everyone in Taiwan is like me, totally pro-independent, but love leftist politics. We have very complicated history, like, you know, Wendy has said, but I mean, the best way is to, for me, is to connect people in issue-related movement. So for instance, I, I'm, I'm more involved in the LGBTQ movement in Taiwan. And for, you can say, queer and feminist academia, you know, predominantly U.S. dominated. The problem is that, as I said earlier, that any sort of Taiwan's progress is seen as a kind of sort of U.S. right-wing manipulation, right? So then the test is then to historicize the movement that we have, right? That obviously is, like Wendy said, it's always already global as well, but it also has its local history. And I'm always uh, wary of people uh, tend to use a very self-orientalizing way of thinking about Taiwan's local politics as well. So uh, for instance, in the LGBTQ movement, it's not that it's completely not about the West, right? It's about the West, but it's also about Taiwan. Like the idea, the turn of Tongzhi, obviously it has a very sort of local idea, but it's also a Sinophone idea coming from Hong Kong's culture, there is some complexity with China's socialist legacy, but that's why it's so interesting because it's really complicated. So uh, I think my test is usually to represent Taiwan in, in a more nuanced and complicated way as possible. I think in that way, you can really connect people and connect to the different types of progressive groups. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I'll add to that on the New Bloom end is specifically doing some of that representational work in English in terms of reaching an audience who, who who really could use some sort of guidance around the sort of nuance of discussing some of these topics and to sort of uh, have, again, in English where the kind of discursive context is sort of dominated by, you know, Republican hawks using Taiwan as this sort of jab towards China, where it's important to have a sort of a media space for a counter discourse to form and sort of gain momentum. Let's see, the other question that I see in the chat box, I think this might be, maybe I'll pose this one for Professor Chang. The question is, recently the Taiwanese American church shooting shocked the community and the country. Uh, what role do churches play in terms of Taiwanese American identity? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that in terms of the role of the Presbyterian Church of Taiwan in your research. Right, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so for those are, who are not familiar, in mid-May, 
a person came into a church in Laguna Woods and the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church of Irvine was having a gathering there and he started shooting people and he ended up killing one person and injuring several other mostly elderly Taiwanese Americans. And it turned out that the shooter himself was also a Taiwanese immigrant from a Waisheng mainlander background. So in terms of churches, that particular church, the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, has a long history of being a supporter of Taiwanese independence. So the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan was a space where people who were Taiwanese identified could go and be supported, right? And the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan also helped put out a, a declaration in support of Taiwanese independence, you know, in, in the 1970s, and was always a, a conduit for Taiwanese independence activists to reach the world beyond Taiwan. And so it has that history. And so the congregations tend to be very sort of passionately, ardently Taiwanese identified and usually pro-Taiwan independence. And this congregation was also an elderly congregation. Many of them were exactly those first generation immigrants that I write about, which I also think played into how they were, this group of elderly people were able to subdue and tie up the shooter with extension cords, <laughs> right? Um, even before the police even arrived, you know? So that was a part I found really interesting about reading Wen's research on civil defense, because I was kind of like, of course, you know, Taiwanese people are always having to figure things out for themselves and they can do it, you know, because because of that that history. So something I don't want to get lost in a critique of politics is that idea that at a historical moment, people were organizing in the best ways that they could to tackle what they felt was the biggest problem, which was KMT authoritarian rule, right? And they found really creative, incredible ways to do that. Not just official political organizations, but people did not identify as activists, but were nonetheless, you know, pitching in money for political prisoners' families who were putting up activists to stay at their house, who were, you know, bringing radio transmission equipment to Taiwan, smuggling in transmission equipment in all these little ways, trying to participate in increasing the possibility for Taiwan to help self-determination, right? And I think this is also a response to Adam's question is that the question that doesn't get asked in these kinds of jostlings of, you know, the global of Western dominated left is what do people in Taiwan want, you know? And so the more that that can be amplified, you know, with all of the complexities and nuances of who people in Taiwan are now, you know, but what do people in Taiwan want? You know, that question is usually completely, you know, not part of the conversation, which I think is contradictory to left politics. Um, sorry, I was getting away from Eric's question. Yeah, so I think, it was the shooting was interesting because what happened is that it created a space in which that history of Taiwan became publicly discussed. The Waisheng versus Bensheng split became publicly discussed in the U.S. in the L.A. Times. And, you know, at least in Southern California, it was. But you also saw at the very beginning how little understanding there was of Taiwanese history and politics, because initially the police identified the shooter as a Chinese immigrant. And then it took a while to kind of suss out. But again, I will also point out that the default for some people was to then say, for example, um, I think one of the FAFA, the Fumarosin Association of Public Affairs came out 
and called for the pro-unification group that the shooter was affiliated with to be labeled a terrorist organization, even though that organization said, you know, we don't claim this. This has nothing to do with, you know, anything that we would advocate for. And then what was lost in that was any discussion of U.S. gun violence, <laughs> right? You know, so again, the U.S. kind of escapes critique and it's mapped onto this, you know, other people's problem kind of thing. So that's the other take I would present on the church shooting. Thank you, Professor Chang. So the next question that I have through direct message, I think this is more directed towards Professor Liu. So the question is, are those who claim to oppose war consistent in their opposition to war? Or does interrogation of their, quote, anti-war position reveal rationalization of war or other forms of state violence by parties perceived as opposed to the U.S. slash the West? I think the question was coming out of the discussion of groups like Code Pink and the China's Not Our Enemy campaign and just sort of anti-war politics amongst the left more broadly and sort of, I guess, what your analysis of that particular strain of the new Cold War discourse is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can say more about it. I mean, I, I feel like they're, I mean, they say no Cold War, but really they're all about the Cold War, right? I mean, because they really want to see the so-called quote-unquote balance of power or, or in, you know, international relation term, right? This part of the strain of geopolitical realism, right? That sees the global power competition between U.S. and China as completely inevitable, right? It's inevitable, so the U.S. should concede or uh, leave space for China to grow and to breathe and to do whatever it wants. And in the meantime, in order to keep the peace across the strait, that means that whatever Taiwanese want, sovereignty, peace, or democracy, all that things can be sacrificed for the sort of broader sort of global peace. Or sometimes they would call that as multilateralism, right? That how China's engaged in this South to South multilateralism as opposed to the US is engaging in a direct hegemony, you know, of the whole world. So I mean, I think their view of global power, both of the U.S. and China, are really simplistic in that terms. And rather than thinking about in that balance of power or sort of new Cold War term, we can see now in the current sort of Russian and Ukraine war, even though it is a, a hot conflict of actual battlefield, but the condition of the war is very different because our global economy is so intertwined and interdependent. So we have all these problems, right, with supply chain disruption of inflation in all kinds of places. And you can see how China, even though it sort of signed a deal with Russia to support them, but they are actually, uh, they cannot explicitly, right, supply Russia with military means because their economy is also completely intertwined in sort of the global supply chain as well. So I think we need to really change our framework, I mean, from this binary term, but thinking about how different parts of the region are all implicated in, even though it's a regional conflict, but, you know, every party is involved and sort of implicated and, and everyone has a stake. So I think it's really hard to take that kind of, again, a moralistic term of opposition to war and pretending that we're not already implicated in it. So if we're already implicated in then we need to have a position. We need to think about what's our role, right, in thinking about a more just solution for now. So I think that's kind of uh, my thinking. Um, I don't know if that responds to that question. Thank you. Oh, it looks like there are two more questions that just came through. And these will probably be the last two audience questions that we have time for. 
the first one is in terms of awareness of political slash hybrid slash disinformation warfare techniques how to bring that to places vulnerable to Chinese political influence outside of Taiwan and Hong Kong. Rather, how did that happen specifically in Taiwan that people became so hyper-aware of this influence? Yeah, so I guess that is potentially a question for Professor Liu around disinformation warfare as one of the things that you've observed responses to in some of your most recent field work. So do you want to field that question? Yeah, so, so Taiwan really is a critical side to think about, as you know, even though the Russia-Ukraine war seems like it has nothing to do, to, uh, do with us, but because of the Chinese misinformation campaign actually coming from Russia, right, often being translated into uh, Chinese, and Taiwan becomes a site that can easily uh, become the circulated site of that kind of disinformation, right? So it is important for Taiwan to have a clear view on this disinformation war because we will become, you know, a site that actually propagate these ideas as well. So we need to think about, again, right, how interconnected all these politics and issues are due to, you know, hyperspeed of translation, of circulation of information. And a lot of time because of our, you know, social media usage. I mean, in Taiwan, that's why we have such, um, you know, issues with disinformation because all these platforms we have. And a lot of Taiwanese people do not have a awareness that, right, that we are actually under disinformation attack because calling that a disinformation attack is as if you are making a threat against China, right? Or it is sometimes you'll call, oh, it's a DPP's idea of controlling people's mind. But really, I think we need to be, you know, seriously looking at this issue as we are currently engaging in low level but permanent kind of warfare in order to be uh, more clearly prepare, you know, Taiwan's position, right, in this international relation. So that's kind of how I see that. And then we have one more last audience question around the Ministry of Education's 2030 bilingualism policy. And I guess the speaker's thoughts on criticisms of this policy in terms of disadvantaging other sort of forms of linguistic diversity in Taiwan, such as Hokkien, Hakka, and various indigenous languages. I don't know if either speaker has any comments to this. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I do hear uh, criticism of, you know, the policy. I mean, I'm not definitely not an expert on the issue, but, you know, in a way is that obviously Taiwan is undergoing, you know, transitional justice and there's a lot of work that hasn't been done. And part of it is that a lot of scholars and activist groups are sort of recovering our tradition and a lot of the lost heritage, you know, and languages due to sort of the KMP's authoritarian control, right? And and part of the, you know, most related issue, obviously, is the issues of language. So rather than sort of pushing directly toward that Taiwan become the next Singapore, I think, right, Taiwan has a lot more potential of being something else, of, of getting um, touch to its other traditions as well. So, I mean, that's kind of the comments I've heard from people who are working on it. So rather than going sort of uh, speed ahead toward Mandarin and English as official languages, we need, you know, more time to think about redefining like what Taiwan is and what's being lost. Great. And I guess one last question that I'll throw out to sort of wrap things up is that one of the recurring themes I noticed in this conversation, but also in both of Professor Chang and Professor Liu's work is the importance of 
disaggregation, that is sort of picking apart positions or groups that are sort of commonly thought of or fused together in sort of conventional discourse, such as Taiwanese independence equals pro-US or equals anti-communism, anti-China, et cetera, et cetera. And the other sort of recurring theme that comes up in both of your work is that at the end of each of your book manuscripts, you both invoke this phrase by E. Tani Kim called transnationally Asian as a way to emphasize the importance of an internationalist perspective when addressing issues of youth politics in Asia right now and also in terms of radical politics in the U.S. and elsewhere. So I was curious, as kind of a wrap-up question, if either speakers had any comments about the importance of disaggregation as a sort of a key kind of ethos or move uh, when discussing the topic of Taiwan and the Cold War, and then also if you had any more comments to say about the importance of internationalist politics when it comes to these issues. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, thanks, Randy. I, I mean, I think that's really important. And I, uh, so in the last chapter, I wrote about this new political consciousness called transnationally Asian. And I think what distinguished this type of political identity from perhaps I'll invoke, right, Chen Guangxing's Asia as a method, right, that tend to think about Asia as this broad sort of region, right, that has a, you know, uniform, united potential against the West. Uh, I think this generation of activists are, uh, again, right, viewing Asia as much more complicated, right? And there's a lot of disaggregation that we need to do because the internal conflicts and the really complicated politics, even within Asia itself. So we cannot take, again, the sort of nativist idea of Asia or Asian internationalism against the West. And very similar to, you know, when we open our conversation to talk about new Cold War or the no Cold War idea, I just want to stress that we are in a very interdependent world right now. So it's unlikely that the political movements can take, I think, the 60s decolonial movement of Asia, Africa, United. And that kind of idea and rhetoric has been increasingly appropriate by authoritarian leaders in Asia and Africa. So we need to be very careful of how those discourses, the monolithic united region as an entire block, that kind of idea has been monopolized. So we need a much more, I think, transnational, a much more complicated and much more globally engaged ideals of thinking about activism rather than East versus the West, Asia versus the West, etc. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I think historical specificity is really important, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a simple thing to say, but something I appreciated about Wen's book manuscript, which I was lucky enough to read in its current form, is that, you know, you talk about Asian American identity as an assemblage. And so I was thinking about, oh, well, Taiwanese American identity or Taiwanese identity is also an assemblage. And in order to understand that, we have to think about what are the forces that are shaping that at any given time. And there's kind of like a dialectical process between who we are, right, or who we claim to be, who we want to be, and, the, and then what we want, you know, and what's the relationship between those two things, who we are and what we want. <laughs> and so when I'm thinking about political consciousness formation or identity formation from the 60s to the 80s, I'm trying to think about how those things are forming in relationship to each other. So not to apply the ideas that we have now 
you know, to project those back onto that time period, or as one says, to romanticize that time period in projections onto the present either, but to really try to understand what are the material and ideological structures that are making certain kinds of consciousness formation possible or feel necessary at any given time, you know, so Throughout my book, I kept thinking about, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about infrastructures of feeling and how those are kind of these recurrent desires that shape political traditions. And she's talking specifically about the Black radical tradition. But, you know, thinking about ideas of tradition or structures of feeling, you know, going back to Raymond Williams, that's also about our process of selecting and reselecting our ancestors, right? You know, who we identify with in terms of drawing from the past to create the future that we want. So I think that's really important, you know, because throughout our conversation today, we've been seeing a lot of collapsing without attention to historical and material specificity, right? A lot of projections of ideology that don't square with material realities. So taking a really like materialist approach to, you know, consciousness formation, I I think is important generally. So that is unfortunately all the time that we have for today. Let's have a virtual round of applause to thank our two wonderful speakers, Professors Wen Liu and Wendy Chang. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, the NASA coordinators. Thank you for listening to another episode of Radio New Blue. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Daniel Yo Ling in collaboration with the North American Taiwan Studies Association. A special thank you to Luo Maowei, Yang Gang, Zhong Yiting, and Wu Dan for their technical assistance with this event and episode. Thank you also to LTK Commune for use of their song, Good Night Taiwan, for our theme music. We hope that you'll tune in soon to another episode of Radio New Bloom. Oh,